Thank you. All right. So as we continue on in our study, we have the wonderful opportunity to continue on. Oops, I'm going to work now. There we go. To continue on in our discussion of how we are meant to live with confidence and what it means and why so many Christians don't live in co with confidence uh, in their Christian lives. But So to give us an illustration to begin, I'd like you to imagine waking up in a hospital bed. You don't remember how you got there. You don't remember what happened. But you're surrounded by people with puffy eyes who are crying, who are smiling to see you finally awake, and yet you don't recognize a single one of them. They're saying they're so glad to see you and you're trying to pretend like you know what's going on, but you're completely lost. You don't know how you got there. You don't know what's wrong with you. You don't know why all these people are around you. They're not dressed as orderlies. They're just folks that you feel like that you should know, but that they know you, but you, don't, you can't quite make them out. You can't quite recognize them. It's a, it's a situation, right, that has been often dramatized in movies, but I've actually had this experience myself to, to a slight degree. Uh, when April and I were uh, finishing up our college experience together, our, our college degrees, our last year uh, we were, it was also our, of college, was our first year married, and we were driving back up from Denver, and we were in a horrible head-on collision that... Um, knocked me completely out. In fact, I just remember driving north that night and nothing else until I remember waking up in the hospital bed and looking around and seeing my one of my well my best friend sitting there in the uh, sitting there in the chair next to me and a note on my chest that said you were in a car accident. April's fine. You'll feel better in the morning. Um, and I immediately got that and read it and I said Kevin, it's my best friend who had showed up there. Kevin, what's going on? He said, just read the note. I've told you 300 times. See, I got had a minor concussion. I experienced uh, short-term memory loss. So I didn't remember what had happened. I didn't remember from one you know, time waking up to the next what was going on. April was actually in surgery at the time, and, and praise the Lord, was fine. Um, but it was a helpless moment, and it couldn't help but feel very insecure, very underconfident, be, uh, because I didn't know where I was at. I didn't know how I got there, and I didn't know if the, my loved one, if April was safe. We had no children at the time. Um, and and I, I want you to picture that because I think it's a beautiful picture for why a lot of Christians don't live with confidence. They, we live as if we have spiritual amnesia. We wake up every day and we forget where we're going, why we're here, and what the Lord has done. So as we consider living with confidence in our day-to-day -day condition, I want you to keep that image in your mind. That it's so easy for us, as, as trapped as we are in time and as easily distracted as we are by the events of our days, it's so simple for us to live as if we were spiritually unconscious of what was going on um, and, and um, how we were meant to live and what the Lord had made clear to us previously. It's just easy to be distracted and live very much like that with that state of spiritual amnesia. So... Um, we, we've been talking through some confidence killers, right? And the first confidence killer that we saw was unbiblical expectations. That be, uh, believers who have unbiblical expectations of their faith live without confidence, right? Most people who I meet who say, I'm not even sure if I'm saved. Say, did you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, his death, burial, resurrection? They say, yes, I did. So, but I'm not sure I'm saved. Well, why aren't you sure you're saved? Well, because I'm not perfect yet. I'm still struggling with sin. Oh, 
So because you had an unbiblical expectation that you would never struggle with sin again, you're not confident in your salvation. That's a problem. But it's not God's problem. It's not God's shortcoming. It's your shortcoming of not knowing what his word says. Uh, not understanding the growth plan. Not understanding, one, that we have to grow and that growing takes time, that we will grow in our Christian lives. We're not instantly sinless. But also understanding how we grow, right? Um, anybody who's uh, raised flowers knows that not every flower in the garden needs the same conditions. Some need more water, some need less water. Some need more direct sunlight, some need less. And a successful gardener is one who knows how every plant is meant to grow. So similarly, if we want to grow, we need to understand how the Word of God, how God wants to grow us through the working of His Son, through His Spirit, and through His Word. The next confidence killer for uh, believers is not living in confident understanding of your position. That's what we studied in our previous session. If you don't understand how you are positioned in Christ, if you don't understand that when the, the minute you place faith in Christ, that God now sees you as complete in Christ, holy in him, blameless and impositioned in him, then you're not going to be live confidently because every little failure you have will remind you of what's going on in your condition and take your eyes off of what God is giving you perfectly in Jesus Christ. And finally, we saw that uh, last week's uh, lesson hopefully made very clear that no believer is going to walk with confidence who is walking according to the sin nature, walking according to the flesh, or to put the other way, not walking in the Spirit, or not walking by means of the Spirit. So, we looked at this chart. This chart hopefully is, is helpful to, for us to understand that every believer who has trusted in Jesus Christ, every believer who has trusted in Jesus Christ has now been identified with Christ at his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and seating at the right hand of the Father. And such as such, every believer has both an earthly condition, what's going on day to day now while you're growing in this life, and an eternal position wherein you are set apart, perfected in Christ, and that is said to be completely done, completely finished. You're seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ. Those two things are going on. And so we call these two ideas in Scripture, first of all, our heavenly position, or our position in Christ, and our daily condition. And we're working to see that those two match up, or grow, grow to the point where those two match up increasingly. When we look at this daily condition, we can talk about it like this, in terms of reviewing last week's lesson. We are meant to live with our eyes fixed on Christ, trusting in the resources that he has given us. And when we're, our eyes are on our position, our faith and our position in Christ, we walk by means of the Spirit, trust in the provision that he's given us, and we grow slowly but surely. But then something happens, just like Peter, who gets distracted by the wind and the waves and begins to sink, our eyes fall off of Christ. We start to trust in ourselves, or we choose to trust in or get distracted by the events of this world, or uh, something. someone does something to us that distracts us from looking to Christ actively, and we start to focus on either uh, the situation around us, the circumstances around us, or even just on what, am, uh, what do I want, what do I, what do I, whatever, whatever my selfish condition is. And at that point, we cease to walk by means of the Spirit, and we fall down, and we are spiritually, we might say, dormant or non-productive. So what do we need to do? We need to return our gaze back to Christ. We need to begin to walk by means of the Spirit again, right? The positive command that we saw last week. And then we continue to walk forward. We grow again. So the believer's life is spent either with our eyes fixed on Christ and we're growing, focused on him, focused on his word, or our eyes are off him and we're not growing. 
right? We're either have our eyes fixed on him and we are accruing or making the, what, the, what 1 Corinthians 3 talks about or compares to gold, silver, and precious stones, or our eyes are not on him and we're accruing wood, hay, and stubble. But the command is to continue to walk by means of the Spirit. Uh, and what we saw last week is walking by means of the Spirit is active. Walking by means of the Spirit is not a passive process. It is an active process. It doesn't just mean I confessed my sins and now I'm walking by means of the Spirit. You might do that. It might be a wonderful thing to do. But walking by means of the Spirit is actually a positive command. It's actively choosing to trust Him, actively leaning, and, uh, leaning on, learning, and applying the Word of God, actively relying on the ministries of the Holy Spirit, actively resisting the devil and his lies, actively rejecting the world and its deception, actively choosing to be preoccupied with Christ at any given moment. It's not a passive process at all. It's an active process of keeping your eyes focused on what he's revealed, on what he's known. You say, how, how can I do that? How can I actively choose to be preoccupied with Christ? And we talked about some things you can do. Be in church. That's a great thing to do. You come together with the body of Christ. You share fellowship with the brothers and sisters in the Lord. You, you pray together. All those things help you continue to be actively preoccupied with Christ or choosing to focus on Christ. Mem uh, memorizing Bible verses and continuing, continually thinking about them over the course of the day. It's a great thing to do. You're actively being preoccupied with Christ and his word, listening to sermons, or maybe just rethinking about a sermon or a message that you've heard, reading your Bible, all these other wonderful things that you do that help us, at least give us the opportunity to return our gaze to Jesus Christ, to rely on what he has done, to understand that his revelation of the truth is ultimately the only authoritative revelation or uh, worldview in which we can have. So today, as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, we're talking about confidence in gifting. And another reason why believers uh, are oftentimes not uh, confident in their walk with Christ is because they're not rightly related to the body of Christ. And if we're not rightly related to the body of Christ in terms of both how we serve in, in the body of Christ and how we live in the body of Christ, then we're, of course, going to be underconfident. So the first thing we need to know from Scripture is that every believer has a spiritual gift at least one. And the Bible is very clear that you're not meant to be fussing or concerning yourself over what your gift is. You'll find that as you walk by means of the Spirit, as you grow in Christ, you'll already be using it. Gifts of service, gifts of helps, gifts of uh, mercy and compassion, gifts of care, gifts of hospitality, you'll find yourself using them as you are walking by means of the Spirit. And we find that the gifts are given by God and designed to be used uh, by reliance on the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to study today is that the gifts, the spiritual gifts, and your whole life has a purpose in conjunction with the body of Christ. You have a purpose. You have a function. You have a reason for being here. And part of that is to use your giftedness. And part of that is to be built up by the giftedness of others. And we'll look at what the point of all that is. And it will help us understand how to live with confidence in Christ. Hopefully. So Ephesians 4.11 says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So we're going to uh, start here. He himself is the one who gave, right? This is God himself doing. God took the initiative to do this. And we know one thing about God is he does not take or he does not waste his action. 
If God says you are going to need this, and last week, right, we opened up to Acts chapter 2, and Jesus told them what? Wait until you get what? Until who comes? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. The implication, you can't do this apart from the Holy Spirit. Your, your efforts will be entirely wasted apart from the working and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So here he's giving another gift to the church, or some other gifts to the church, and these people. And so God is the one taking the initiative. Initiative. It is not, um, as much as we look up to and admire the apostles, we recognize that it was nothing that they did within themselves. It was the gifting of God that made them special in God's economy. And he gave some to be apostles. This word is apostolos. Um, it's direct transliteration into English. And it means one who is especially sent. A sent one. And an apostle was different than a messenger. A messenger was just sent to give a message, right? But an apostle was sent with a mission and all the authority needed to complete that mission. So um, God gave some of these apostles. Now, in the books uh, of First and Second Corinthians, we see a lot more information about how Paul, how it was revealed to Paul to understand and explain what apostleship was about and how it was qualified. But today we're going to um, just appease ourselves by looking back briefly at um, Ephesians 2.20. And Ephesians 2.20, talking about apostles and prophets together again, same viewpoint. He says, uh, having been built, talking about the church, having been built on the foundation of the what? Apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So we note the temporary nature of the apostles and prophets because they were what? Foundational. They were used to lay the foundation of the church. And if you're a good builder, you only need to lay the foundation once. And so these apostles and prophets were critical, vital to the early church. And then there was not need for more because we didn't need more foundation laying. We needed the other gifts uh, to continue. So these uh, first century era gifts, uh, that's why there was no apostolic succession, right? The Bible tells us, as, as uh, Sam is teaching us, how to appoint more church elders, what criteria to use, how to appoint more deacons, what criteria to use. But it doesn't tell us how to, how to appoint or recognize more apostles. Why is that? Well, because there won't be any more. That apostles was a first century uh, thing, and they had some special abilities. The chief and most important among them was the ability, or if you like, the gifting to write holy scripture. It was the most important gift that they gave to the church was their special authorization to give us the New Testament scriptures. So all of your New Testament is written either by an apostle or what we call an apostolic legate, someone who is writing in conjunction with or maybe even on behalf of another um, an apostolic author. So the book of Mark is written under the apostolic uh, supervision or authority of Peter, right? Um, yeah, so, so that idea uh, goes, Luke was written under the authority of Paul. And so we go on. <clears throat> you have these apostles, and we see that their chief gift of, uh, was to give us New Testament doctrine, teaching, the New Testament epistles and such. And then we also have some prophets. This is prophetes. And it is uh, those who represent God. Now, it seems, to, it seems that prophets in the uh, early church 
were not terribly distinct from Old Testament prophets. And just like Old Testament prophets, very few, if any, are named. I mean, we, we know that we have our Old Testament prophets, but what you don't realize, or what we don't often realize or think of, is the fact that during the time of the Old Testament, there were entire schools, dozens, scores of unnamed prophets who were speaking the truth of the word of God for that, con uh, that context in that time, right? They were especially gifted, especially selected people who were meant to give God's word in context context, some of which would later be uh, decreed by God to be put into his Bible, into his word. Does that make sense? Is that often confusing or does that make sense? So in the New Testament, before they had Acts, and they might have had bits of the Gospels, but before they had Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, before they had all that information, they would rely upon these especially designated, gifted super teachers until such time as the whole word of God is, is, was given, right? And if you think for a moment that it would be more fun to have a prophet than to have the settled word of God, then I tell you, you're a fool. Because having the settled word of God, I can tell you something and be totally wrong. And you can say, see, look, you're wrong. It doesn't say that. It says this, right? And that's wonderful because that keeps us all accountable to Christ and Christ's alone. However, if I say I'm a prophet and God told me, well, you're pretty much out of luck, aren't you? You pretty much got to do what I say if I'm not lying to you. And how do you tell? Oh my, what a mess we're in. But because now we have the completed word of God, the final authority of the word of God, we are not attached to the whims and potential deceptions of people claiming to speak on God's behalf. We can say we have God's word. He has spoken. So, what we see is that the first gifting that, uh, giftings that are mentioned here are the apostles and prophets who gave us the Bible. I say they gave us the Bible because even the Old Testament writers are called uh, prophets of God. They gave us the word of God after their fashion. So these two giftings gave us the Bible, and particularly the New, Testaments within the New Testament within the context of the church. Then we have evangelists. And again, this is another wonderful word that is just transliterated right out of the Greek. And the word euangelion means good news. So good news spreaders, right? So these are the people who are um, giving an angelos, as an angel. These are people who are spreading the good news. These are just people especially gifted to, uh, to, to, to share the news, to bring the good news, to bring the message of the gospel where it hasn't been before. So we have the apostles and prophets giving us the word of God. We have the evangelists spreading the gospel, spreading the word of God. And then we have pastors, that is teachers, pastors and teachers. So some will argue is this too different offices or is this two descriptions on the same office and I would say this is talking about two descriptions on the same office but with the proviso that a person may be gifted in teaching but not necessarily gifted as a pastor but a uh, pastor is, as uh, Sam explained to us on just this last Sunday means a shepherd or one who cares for as a shepherd right in the in this sense so <clears throat> this is the only time it's used in its noun form and so pastors are given as a continuing gift and we're told that their main function is to teach the main function of pastors is to teach just as the main function of up under shepherds is to feed and basically protect the flock so they can be safe and grow uh, so the primary function of pastors is to explain and help others apply the word of God so that they might grow. All right? Now we find out why these gifts are, are, are all here. 
Um, first of all, and we, we also want to mention that these aren't all the spiritual gifts. There are several spiritual gifts lists in Scripture. Um, we've got 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, 1 Peter talks about them as well. And I would note that just like the sin lists in the Bible, it's very likely that the spiritual gifts lists are not exhaustive. Right? That, uh, that because the Bible doesn't set to limit every way that the Spirit might work through a person, it just is giving some good examples. We, wanna, we would study those just to see kind of what the basic trend of things are. But at the, at the same time, it's not necessarily a limitation on what the gifts of the Spirit or how the Spirit might be working in gifting a believer. All right, so it's all working for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So let's start off with the equipping of the saints. This word katartismos, katartismos is, uh, means to make full or make ready. This is the idea of equipping or preparing a soldier for battle. When you're preparing a soldier for battle, you're preparing him for a great, horrifying, terrible conflict wherein he wants to have all his armor. How often, as a soldier going into battle, would you be willing to accept being eh, third equipped? You know, you got everything except for your bullets. You got everything except for your gun. You got everything except for your helmet. You wouldn't accept that. That's ridiculous. And yet that is the purpose. So this gifting of the body of Christ, as we see, comes for the ultimate purpose of equipping or preparing others for the battle that's ahead. Okay? So for the equipping for the saints, and then we see here for the work of ministry. The saints is every believer here. The saint, uh, any person who is trusted in Jesus Christ is set apart to his purpose. That's what saint means. It has the idea of sanctification in it. And uh, every believer is a saint or is set apart by God to his purpose for a goal of the work of ministry. <clears throat> and that's a, a critical point to notice is that those pastors that is teachers they're not actually in the ministry here they're just here to equip you to do the ministry the pastors may may be you know ministering effectively hopefully they are in their context but ultimately the goal of coming together as a church is so that you can be prepared and equipped to share the gospel to represent the love and the truth of christ to serve and build up the body of christ on your own <clears throat> so the work of ministry is not for those who are in that interesting euphemism we use in vocational ministry. Those people are generally meant to be effectively preparing others for going out and doing the work. But every single person in the body of Christ is meant to be a frontline soldier in the battle. And then we go on to get more information. It's for the edifying, this word Oikodome has the word oikos. It means house and it means building up. So edifying here is a great word. It, it means to build up as a building. So every the church, church should be building you up as a building in the body of Christ or building up rather the body of Christ. And the body of Christ, of course, is that wonderful organic imagery. So we have the whole, the gifts the God is giving these gifts right gifts to bring us the word gifts to spread the word gifts to explain and exhort people to understand and apply the word of god so that they'll be equipped for the work of ministry so that the body of christ right the church on earth the church that is comprised of every person who has trusted in jesus christ of salvation is now mystically and permanently united together in that body in salvation and our position in christ we're meant to be building up that body building up that group and so you will have confidence 
when you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing? Are you building up the body of Christ? Is what you're doing edifying someone, encouraging someone towards the Lord? Is it building someone? Is it, is it, again, is it encouraging them? Is it edifying? Is it teaching them? Is it making them know? Is it exhorting them? Is it challenging them? Is it building up the body of Christ? Or is it not? We can walk with confidence when we know that we're uh, doing that whatever, to whatever measure we have. Verse 13, we're going to break down uh, very much by phrase here. It says, until we all come. Now, what we want to point out here is that we're, we're getting to these purpose statements, that we're getting to a goal here. And this word hoipantes, which you see, let me see if I can get this. Hoi pantes. Pantes means all. Have you ever heard of a pantheist? A pantheist is someone who worships everything as God, right? Every, or if we talk about uh, someone who's, um, yeah, anyway. Pan, pan meaning all, right, in, in English as well. So the idea here is hoi pantes. It means it's a plural form of all. So all y'alls, we're all meant to come to this. Now this is important because there is a very deep running idea in american christianity that christianity is sort of kind of like watching or playing fantasy football do you ever play fantasy football you go and pick all your players and then depending on how they do in the game you win or lose right and i think a lot of times we play fantasy christianity right we we, we pick our favorite pastors maybe our favorite authors our favorite teachers we say, oh those guys oh yeah those oh amy carmichael she's uh, definitely going to have those so and so on my team then we'll have that perfect christian team in my fantasy relationship to to uh, maturity but that's not the point the point of christianity is that every single believer is meant to come to this the hero worship christianity is ridiculous we're meant to all be working corporately growing corporately together and then we have this wonderful word here we have uh, translated as two but it's ice and ice means not just two as in toward but two as in into Okay, so the, the, the thrust of this, and he's going to use this ice preposition again and again and again. He's saying that we've been all called and we're all hoping to come into this. So let's see what we're meant to come into. First of all, the unity of the faith. And I want to point out in English as well as in Greek, we're going to have these two thes, tame and taste here, uh, in front of unity and faith okay so what is the difference what's the distinction here see in english we have a an uh, non or sorry what do we call it anyway uh we have our definite articles and our indefinite articles so our definite article is the right and our indefinite article is a or an but in greek there is no indefinite article just the definite and when the definite article is present it means something specific okay so He's not just talking about, he's leading us into a generic unity of the generic idea of faith. He's talking about we are meant to be growing into, coming into by the giftedness in the body, by the working of every member of the body, being drawn deeply into the specific unity of the specific faith. Well, what's the specific faith? Faith is a noun is a little bit strange to us. We talk about faith or belief or trust in more verbal forms, and they are. In fact, someone said, um, yeah. But faith can also be a noun, and so it is here. And when faith is used as a noun, the unity of the faith, it's not talking about the act of believing. It's talking about the content of what you believe. So in other words, the focus and the function and the purpose of the church is that we are all moving towards an agreement on the faith. 
You say, <laughs> you could, I mean, goodness, you'd have a better luck getting 14 teenagers to agree on pizza toppings than you would to get 14 Christians to agree on Bible doctrine. And you say, you'd say yeah, that, that's fair. But that's the purpose to which we've been called into. That's why we take Bible study so seriously. That's why we break it down verse by verse, is to say, if we understand it correctly, we will all come to a, the same understanding. It might take time. In fact, I argue it'll take all the way into our, uh, our next life, but that's the process that we're meant to be in. And you know what? That's going to give you confidence. As you grow with the body of Christ and recognize and learn to see why you believe the things you believe and you're surrounded by other believers who also understand that, you grow in confidence, right? You ever, you ever flustered in an argument and say, I'm not the only one who thinks this, right? There's just some sort of comfort in knowing that you're not crazy, you're not the only one seeing it this way. And so it is. As we grow and study the Bible together, as we grow and, and, and learn and know what Jesus Christ is about, we're going to come to a, a specific unity or an ever-growing unity in the faith of the revealed Word of God. That's our goal, that's our mission, that's our purpose, and that's going to give you confidence as you live and understand the world around you. Next, the next is, and the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, so we have um, this idea of knowledge here. There's actually three words in the Bible used for knowledge. I might argue two and a half. There's um, Oida, which is knowledge by perception. You know, you like learn about something by reading about it or someone telling you about it. And then there's gnosko, which is knowledge uh, that you've gained by experience. And then there's epigonosko, which is an intensification of that gnosko knowledge. And so the picture here is that we are all growing in this epigonosko, this, this uh, intimate and deep knowledge of not a doctrine, not just an idea, but a person of the Son of God, or literally, the Son of the God. So it's using, again, those definite articles here to remind us that we are not just growing in our understanding of, of a bunch of Bible teachings, but we're growing in our understanding of who our Savior is. And growing into that together. And that is going to give you greater confidence as you go through life. Because you know who's saved you. You know who's redeemed you. Now it says, into a perfect man, or to a perfect man. Ice, again, everything's into this, into this. So into knowledge, into a deep and intimate knowledge of the Son of God. Into a perfect man. Um, this here is, uh, the word perfect in Scripture, or often translated perfect, is uh, generally or always translates the Greek word teleos, or teleon in this case. And teleos means actually mature, or something brought to its final mature form. So would you, uh, it's, it's more related to uh, maybe a childbearing, or, or you know, like you have an infant, a child, and then finally you have a mature or an adult, right? So the, the picture here is being brought into uh, maturity, into the image of maturity as a Christian person. Um, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. If we wonder what that maturity, uh, maturity looks like, it's into this metron or this measurement, this, which is where we get the uh, English word metric, right? Of the stature or the height, if you like, and the fullness 
of the character of Christ. So what's the picture? The picture is, is that as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as we are grown together with the body, as we move towards the unity of the faith, we begin to show forth the stature of the fullness of the character of Christ. Part of which is the love, peace, joy, the fruit of the Spirit that comes forth from the believer and again gives us confidence in our walk. And then we go through the negative side, and this is really the focus of our, our study in a sense. He says that we should no longer be. So we want to note here, as he continues on, that we're saying that we should no longer be, it implies something very serious. And that's that whatever comes next is something that you are, or that some Christians are, or at least that all Christians start as. And that's important. Because he didn't say that you should never be. But he says that you should no longer be, that you shouldn't be this any longer. It was fine to be an infant when you were an infant, but not now. So the thing you're not supposed to be, or we're not to be any longer, right, that we're supposed to be growing out of is being a child or children. Nepioi here, there's uh, several Greek words used for children or translated child in the Bible. Brephos means a newborn. A nepioi means a, a toddler or a young child. Um, and then moving on to an, an immature, a young man, and then finally into a teleos or a mature adult. And so he said, we're no longer to be. He said we're supposed to be a mature men or people, mature believers, and we're no longer meant to be children. Children are great, right? They're so much fun because they believe almost anything you tell them right? Why? They're immature. They usually get burned quick enough and someone lies to them and tells them something that's not true and then they stop doing that. But at least in their natural kind of, as they grow older, if you tell a child something, then they're likely to believe it because they don't have enough life experience to compare it against, right? It's the easiest thing in the world to deceive a child. That's that phrase, right? It's easier than taking candy from a baby. Why? Because children have a very weak grip and they don't know enough to not look when you say, look that way, right? It's easy to steal candy from kids. It's a fantastic pastime. Oh, wait, no, it's a bad pastime, but it's easy to do. So we should no longer be children. Um, and so this picture of spiritual maturity is moving us away from being easily spiritually manipulated and manipulated. And then it's explained not being tossed to and fro or carried about. So now he starts using language that is related to you, uh, sailing a ship. Okay, so if you're sailing a ship now, mostly in this time, they didn't have the great ships that we have today and the, you know, satellite navigation systems and all the other things that make, you know, circumnavigating the globe possible. They would generally just skip along the coasts more or less in order to keep maximally safe in order to move their uh, ships around. They wouldn't just plummet across the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And yet, in a great storm, what would happen was that you would lose anchor and be spun around and then tossed to and fro so that you couldn't get where you're going or you couldn't even know where you're going. So he's saying, don't be a child, right? Easily manipulatable and easy to deceive. And if you're, as you're taught in the word, you will not be able to get spun around and confused about where you're supposed to be going and what you're supposed to be doing, Right? And then he tells us exactly what's going to try to do that. First of all, every wind of doctrine. Now, I believe most of us, if not all of us, have been here at some point or another where you're going along as a new or young believer, and then someone says, have you ever heard of so-and-so? And then you listen to so-and-so's teaching or whatever, you read the book or whatever it is, and it's totally different than anything you'd ever heard before. And you think, well, maybe I was wrong about everything. 
Oh, goodness, right? And so then you start listening to or reading or whatever, and you go to someone else and you say, well, what about them? And they say, oh, well, they're crazy. You know, it's actually this person. And then all of a sudden you start listening to that person and you get all full up of what they say. And, and just going, bumping in from person to person. In fact, the average Christian, not the, not the ideal from God's perspective, but the average Christian American is so fogged about what they believe or don't believe or how to even confirm what they believe or don't believe. They just turn on the TV and they see what goofsters on TV and go, I guess that's what Christians believe now. Waiting for God to, my day to come, my blessing to come, my money to come, or whatever, whether it's prosperity doctrine or, um, yeah, some kind of ridiculous alarmism or whatever it is that uh, manipulates, is, seeks to manipulate others. So every wind of doctrine is coming, and the immature believers are manipulated by it. They're spun about by it. Um, by the trickery of men. There are, tragically, countless people who are running religious hustles of various variety of kind. Sometimes they're on TV, sometimes they're not. There's uh, people who are running even whole churches that are Ponzi schemes of various kinds, trying to trick, deceive, sometimes for money, sometimes for power, sometimes for influence, for any reason, sometimes just because they themselves are so deceived they think they're doing good. But there are many who are not above in any way using whatever they can to trick believers or trick Christians or just trick people into following them and doing what they want. And finally, the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And again, this idea that even if the people that are individually represented, that false doctrine always comes from the enemy of our soul, Satan. And he is cunning and he is plotting constantly to throw Christians off. So the point of the matter is, is that so many Christians live their lives in absolute underconfidence because they just don't know what the Word of God says. They don't know. They have not been taught to find and lead meaning out of the Word of God. This is why it's so critical that you never say, well, Pastor Brad says, Pastor Bob, Pastor Frank, Pastor Ted, it doesn't matter what pastor anyone says. It matters what the Word of God says. Period. End of sentence. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place for gifted, uh, gifted teachers in the, in the economy of the church. There certainly is. But the ultimate gold standard of truth is what does the Word of God actually say? Shy of that, shy of knowing and being able to defend your beliefs from the Word of God, you are sadly going to be tricked. You're sadly going to be spun around. You're sadly going to fall prey to the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting of the enemy. If you're going to live in confidence, you have to live growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as, the revealed, as through the revealed word of God. And that's going to bring about this result of, of speaking the truth in love. And I've got the Greek up here again uh, for a very important uh, purpose. This word... Alethuntos, alethuntos, right, is the word for truth. But it's not truth as a noun, it's truth as a verb. Have you ever heard the word truth used as a verb? 
We don't do it in English. It's not common. And so our translators have provided for us the wonderful word speaking because more often than not, when we think about lying, we think about the lies that we speak. But when we get to the, the real core power of this word and this concept, it's not just speaking the truth in love. It is truthing in love. Have you ever been able to lie without saying a word? I know you have. In fact, it's quite easy to deceive just by omitting information or deceive by uh, just insinuating by your body language that a certain thing is true or false or whatever it is, right? You never said anything bad about her, but the way that you talked about her made, you re made other people think that she was just not trustworthy, right? So this great verb truthing has far more uh, to do with it involves speaking, but it's not just speaking. It is being truthful in every aspect of our lives. So the, uh, the falsehood that we oftentimes embrace is this idea that there's two circles and we can either be truthful, honest, or uh, truthful in our living. I put living the truth instead of speaking the truth because it's, it's fuller, it's a fuller idea. Uh, <clears throat> living in according with the truth of God. And then we think of a separate qual uh, separate circle of being loving. And sometimes we'll even, you know, evaluate our attitudes and actions in terms of, oh, well, it was the truth, but it wasn't very loving, right? And so we have this idea that you can speak the truth without love, but the truth of the matter is, is that truth can only be spoken if it's true, if it's God's truth, if it's in keeping with God's character, because that's what truth is. When Jesus said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. What was he saying? He wasn't saying he's the truth because he is in keeping with an external standard of what is true. He was saying he is the standard of truth against everything which everything else is held up to. So you cannot have truth without love, at least not according to God's standard, and you cannot have love without truth, right? We can say, oh, I, I spoke the truth, but it wasn't very loving. What you said might be true, but it was not in keeping with the character of the truth, Furthermore, loving, the idea of loving without truth ceases to be love. It's just an empty set of emotions. It's not the objective reality of the self-sacrificing care of one for another. So if we were going to try to make this picture at least more correct, we would have Christ's quality of love, that love which lays down its life for uh, us. And within that, um, the concept of living in truth, and again, these really these circles should be like overlapping completely, but the, for the sake of this illustration, forgive the inaccuracy. And this is, whoops, careful there. This is Christian maturity. Christian maturity does not sacrifice the truth of the word because we're going to save someone else's feelings or save someone else's, but it also doesn't seek to harm others with the truth, right? We'll know we've finally reached Christian maturity when we can speak the truth lovingly without the desire to burn, hurt, or injure, but only to edify, build up, and help others know the, the, uh, the God who loves them more fully. So when you look at your actions and say, I can't wait to tell him this, you're ready to hurt him with the truth, but you really just want to hurt him with the truth, baby, you're out of line. Or you want to, you just want to love everybody and you don't want to, you don't want to, oh, you just don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. You're out of line. That's not Christian maturity. 
Christian maturity is able to do both. Now, it doesn't guarantee that everyone's always going to accept it or take it well. Goodness gracious, no. People's, other people's response, that's completely their business and them and the Lord, between them and the Lord. But speaking the truth in love is living, rather, living this uh, truthing in love is the ultimate picture of spiritual maturity. We're growing up together into Christ the head. So now he's wrapping back around into body analogy. Understanding who we're connected to, who we're related to, and how we are meant to take our orders or take our identity from the head, right? I mean, it, <laughs> if, you, if you see a corpse lying on the ground, you might be able to ascertain who it was by looking at the hands or the general body shape. But, you know, if you saw the head lying next to it, you go, oh, yeah, that was Bob. I mean, you might be a little bit more upset, but the head's where all the identity from is from. That's where all the orders come from. And so Christ is the head of the body, and we're meant to grow into being in order to, to gross an analogy. No? Okay. Anyway, and that gives us into the, the, the final course of this passage, which we will not uh, be studying uh, tonight talks about that from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love so as we continue to grow by the use of the gifting of god and we continue to be um edified in the truth of God's word. We grow in the unity of the faith. We are uh, more conformed to Christ together. We then become able to build up and support and encourage the body in love. And ultimately, all of us doing our own little part makes the body of Christ what it's meant to be on this earth. And in doing so, we're able to live confidently because we know what we're meant to be about. Are you building up the body of Christ? Are you encouraging other Christians? Are you teaching other Christians? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you, are you representing Christ in every situation? Are you growing to the place where you're increasingly speaking or actually living the truth in love? Then yeah, you're headed in the right place. You can be very confident. Even if you're not going to darkest Africa or standing in front of um, audiences of hundreds and thousands preaching the gospel, you can be confident that you're doing and living as God intended as you continue to be that con uh, productive, gifted part of his body and building it up in love until such time as he comes for us. So confidence in Christ. We'll grow in our confidence in Christ when we have confidence in the word of God. If we're not confident in, what, in that, uh, what the Word of God says and understanding the Word of God, then we are not going to be confident in our Christian life, and thus we're not going to be confident in any aspect of our lives. If uh, that confidence then comes from the Bible, as we can explain and understand why we're doing what we're doing, as we can look back at the Word of God and say, that's what you told me to be doing, is to be growing in the grace and knowledge. That's what you told me to be doing, is walking by means of the Spirit. That's what you told me to be doing, is to... Um, be, uh, be, be growing in our understanding of uh, Bible teaching and living that out by faith. You're going to live a confident life. And someone will come up and say, you're doing it all wrong. You're saying, well, you've got a problem with the Bible. Take it up with him. Right now, I think we're doing it just right. And this world's con pretty constant message to Christians is, you're doing it all wrong. Your moral commitments are all wrong. Your spiritual commitments are all wrong. Your time commitments are all wrong. Your priorities are all wrong. And we say, no, these are God's priorities. This is God's way of doing things. And to be quite honest, I don't care 
if the world system respects it or not, if the education system accepts it or not, if our political system approves it or not, because the place that we're taking our marching orders from, our understanding of the world around us is from a higher source, from the very word of God itself. And so it doesn't matter who comes up against it. We know that anything in contradiction or contrast to the word of God is just wrong. And that brings us to an ultimate confidence in the body of Christ. So many people will leave um, the church in general because they've had a bad experience at church. And that just shows they had a misunderstanding of the body of Christ, expecting that the body of Christ was going to be perfect or be what I wanted it to be. But every body of Christ is just a family of goofed up believers saved by grace, we're growing in that grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So once we understand the nature of the body of Christ and how it's meant to be working together, we'll be able to live a confident Christian life as a result. Let's close our time with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word, for the wonders of your love. We thank you for your provision of your son, your provision of your apostles and prophets who gave us the wonderful, perfect, and complete word of God, your Bible, those evangelists who brought that word to us, that we might trust in your gospel, those pastors and teachers that edified us and edify us and build us up so that we might truly be brought to maturity, to the unity of the faith, to conformity to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, and uniform alliance and agreement on the head and in obedience and submission to the head, Jesus Christ, in whose matchless name we pray. Amen.